Welcome to the Health and Wellness Show on the SOT Radio Network, where we expose the lies and emphasize the truth about health in our modern world. Welcome, everybody. Today is June 12th, 2015. Uh, my name is Jonathan. I'll be your host for today. Joining me in our virtual studio from all over the planet are uh, Tiffany, Doug, Gabby, and Erica. We've got a full compliment today. And uh, today our topic is going to be vitamin D and sun exposure. Um, so we're going to be addressing the, uh, the concept that the sun is bad for you. Um, the, the vitamin D, uh, how much do you need, how much do you not need, um, what the functions of it are. And we'll also be talking about uh, sunscreen and uh, a little bit about earth changes, some climate change stuff, and tanning beds, melanoma, a bunch of topics. So... Uh, let's get started a little bit with uh, some connecting the dots uh, from some items in the news. Uh, Tiffany, do you want to get us rolling on that? Sure. Um, this article was posted on site. It was probably a couple of weeks ago. It was actually a best of the web. It's called More Lines Drawn, Radio Host and Guest Gary Null Censored by Progressive Radio Station Over Vaccines. So maybe some of our listeners are familiar with Gary Knoll. He's very popular in the natural health world. He's written numerous books and made a number of documentaries on health. Um, he also has his own radio show, which has been the longest-running health radio show in America. So Gary Knoll was set to go on a public radio show um, in California on station KPFA called Guns and Butter and it was hosted by Bonnie Faulkner. So they were all scheduled to do an interview live on the topic of vaccines because in California there was the bill called SB 277, which is passed now. But this bill uh, is basically a vaccine bill that removes personal belief and religious exemptions for vaccines, and it makes it unlawful for unvaccinated kids to go to school. So Gary Noll and Bonnie were all set up to do this interview live, but they were censored at the last minute. And this is the first time in 11 years that a Guns and Butter show was cut. So uh, the host, Bonnie, decided that she wasn't going to put up with that, and she decided to go on to Gary Noll's show and do a reverse interview where she interviewed Gary on his own show, and then they could share the interview with their listeners. So the KPFA program director said that she cut the show because she, I guess she did some search on Gary Null and she said that he didn't have any credentials and his theories were unsound and he only works to sell products. I guess she got this from a Wikipedia page and Wikipedia is well known for being very biased against natural health. So Gary responded with uh, a nicely, strongly worded letter where he threatened to sue the program director, and then he invited her onto his show for a debate, which I don't think is going to happen. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> uh, this bill that they were talking about, um, basically the bill is saying no shot, no school. Um, this includes private schools, public schools, elementary, secondary schools, child care centers, day nurseries, nursery schools, family-run daycares, and development centers. So the only exemption that the SB 277 bill will allow is a medical exemption. 
So all of our listeners out there, take a look at this article and listen to the interview. Uh, part one is posted up on SOT. Um, in the interview, Gary Knoll points out that all of these bills that remove exemptions for vaccines, the bills not just in California, but in Washington and Oregon. Um, the bills in Washington and Oregon, by the way, both failed. Um, but all these bills were worked on before this big Disneyland measles outbreak, and they were all modeled after each other. So uh, in the interview, Gary basically lambasts the medical industrial complex in general and vaccines in particular. Um, and it's really not a surprise that it was censored if you look at it from the point of view of the forces of darkness that want to keep everybody stupid and lined up to accept vaccines. Um, it's good that the interview eventually happened, even though uh, Bonnie had to go into Gary's show and do it, but it shows how lines are being drawn in the sand and people are really starting to pick sides on this issue. But a few things that Gary pointed out in the interview um, is that there's never, ever been a double-blind, randomized, controlled study on vaccine safety that tested a population of vaccinated people versus non-vaccinated people. So there's really no science behind vaccines, or at least none that's not supported by the vaccine industry. Um, he also says that the highest rates of infection are always among the vaccinated. So check out that uh, interview and the article and uh, get your eyes open. <laughs> yeah, it's a great listen. You know, very helpful. Mm -hmm. I've listened to Guns and Butter for years, <clears throat> and uh, it's some very controversial topics on there. She she's a great host, and the fact that that particular show got censored says a lot about the information yeah. coming out. Yeah, especially if they cover controversial topics anyway. But I guess vaccines, you just can't touch that topic no matter what. <laughs> <laughs> Gary Nolan has done a great job covering that subject of vaccines. I have read several of his articles. They're really, really very insightful and eye-opening. Yeah, a lot. Yeah, he's got a movie, too. Um, I don't remember what it was called now. I watched it a while ago. It was great. It was a really, really good movie, but it was all kind of just laying out the whole vaccine issue. Was it Vaccine Nation? Uh, that might have been it, yeah. Else. Yeah. Um, yeah, I can't. I can't remember. I watched it uh, about a month ago or so. It was great. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, it's also a good watch. Yeah, it's a good um, interview to point people to, so you don't have to go through the whole, you know, points. You just say, listen to this, and then people get an idea. Because, as Tiffany and I were discussing, you know, sometimes he gets really upset. You can tell he's very fired up, you know, about happening mm -hmm. to the show. going to bust his gusset. But he's so no, clear and to the point. He's angry. Yeah. Yeah. I felt the same way, that's for sure. Yeah. Well, our, our next uh, connecting the dots here is something that's kind of, uh, kind of scary. Uh, Erica, do you want to tell us about spring inside of planes. It sounds like you had some yeah. personal experience with it. <laughs> yeah. So um, 
you know, summertime is here, and it's time to take holiday for many people. Schools are out. Kids are traveling, you know. And um, so on May 27th on the Activist Post, Heather Colligan, who writes a lot of interesting stuff for the Activist Post, uh, put up an article called Airlines Spraying Flyers with Pesticides Inside the Plane. And um, I thought, hmm, that's interesting. So I checked out the article, and uh, basically she starts off by talking about pesticide exposure happens. You know, we've all seen crop dusters, or if you drive down the road, you see the guys spraying the weeds on the side of the road, usually in white suits with uh, heavy, you know, respirator-looking things on. And then she kind of asks this question, um, what would it be like to be sprayed with pesticides in a pressurized tube where you can't escape and uh, mm. where people who may be chemically sensitive or asthmatic, you know, are in these airplanes and the doors are sealed shut and, um, you know, you're stuck in there. Do you feel like a bug? It's what she said, which is uh, kind of interesting, you know, um, and so I recently was just on a plane and I was explaining to the other co-hosts about how, you know, the minute they turn on the air con, all of a sudden this white stuff starts coming out, which, you know, you assume is air conditioning. But I was like, wow, okay, maybe <laughs> maybe uh, this article isn't so far-fetched. So I just wanted to share a few things from the article because uh, – I found it concerning, and especially uh, since we all have to fly at some point, or maybe not, you know, it's uh, it's good to know these kinds of things. So basically, the article talks about spraying on um, airplanes, and uh, there's two methods that they use to spray. So um, Sarah Novick of the Organic Authority reports malaria and yellow fever are given as justification for spraying, and... Um, so these two methods are, uh, well, first, the World Health Organization and the International Civil Aviation Organization have outlined two methods that are deemed safe for spraying. One involves spraying insecticides using aerosol cans while you're on board. And then um, she says, in fact, inboard, inbound flights to Cuba, Ecuador, Galapagos, and uh, Grenada, India, Kiribati, Madagascar, Seychelles, Trinidad, and Tobago, and Uruguay require this method of spraying. Um, the other method involves treating plain interior surfaces with insecticides when passengers are not on board. And it says this protects against malaria, mosquitoes, and bugs that cause chagas disease, for example. Uh, cockroaches, fleas, ticks, biting mites, and other pests can be controlled using this method, which is required on all inbound flights to Australia, Barbados, Cook Islands, Fiji, Jamaica, New Zealand, and Panama. So that was a little concerning. In the article, if our listeners are interested, um, there's actually a video of an airline stewardess spraying uh, this aerosol spray as she's walking down the aisle, and uh, a travel blog guy recorded it and put it up here so you can look at that. 
But what's interesting about all this is this is nothing new. And I was kind of shocked to find that out. Um, the author says exposing travelers to dangerous chemicals is not new. From 1944 to the late 70s, DDT was used on airplanes. Hmm. And then, um, oh. and, and, yeah. And, um, and then from 1986 to 1996, uh, Northwest Airlines used what's called BOH, a pesticide. Um, it's called a chlorophyrols. I'm not, it's, C-H-L-O-R-P-H-Y-R-I-F-O-S. So I'm not exactly sure on how to pronounce that. <laughs> but um, it's a, they're very toxic uh, pesticides. In the Journal of Pesticide Reform, they talk about chlorophyllos cause symptoms ranging from nausea to convulsions, possible birth defects, and other genetic damage in humans. The report explains how the practice of spraying is dangerous and completely useless um, next to non-invasive, non-chemical methods. And then back in 1983, the Assistant Surgeon General Donald Hopkins said, uh, disinsection spraying of aircraft has never shown to be highly effective in disease control and prevention. So uh, the the author goes on to say, no one really wants the spread of disease, but this is the problem with unfettered regulatory acceptance of chemical and patent holders. So basically, they're spraying all this stuff. They're not telling you, right? It's not like when they say, make sure that you're, you're in an aisle seat by a door that, you know, you know what you're doing and we have your agreement or, you know, the whole seatbelt lesson or the airbag lesson. It's not like they say, and by the way, <laughs> we decided <laughs> to spray some pesticides uh, in the cockpit today. If there's anybody who may be asthmatic or have allergic reaction, you know, please see your stewardess, right? They don't tell anyone. It's not given as information, not even in the little, uh, you know, emergency card that you get there. So um, she basically said that, uh, you know, these patent holders and the people, the people that are providing these sorts of chemicals, you know, they just do it willy-nilly. And um, the EPA basically ushers in these chemical approvals and um, taking the word of the company and, you know, not really checking for health side effects. So yeah. it, it was pretty disturbing, to say the least. So especially if you're That's on an international flight. Pardon me? It's all for our safety. Don't worry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, you know, everybody knows that. Pes- <laughs> oh, go, go ahead. Go ahead, Erica. Sorry. I was just oh, going to make a joke and say it. <laughs> go on. <laughs> no, we're talking over each other. <laughs> I was just, I was going to say everybody knows oh. pesticides are better than vitamins. That's yeah. been clear yeah. by the EPA and the FDA. And they're totally safe, right? They're safe. There's nothing wrong. You know, you can eat them in your food. You can spray them in the cockpit of the plane. No problem. Exactly. You know, the the thing is, is that, uh, as this article shows, there are other options that they can use that aren't toxic like that. You know what I'm saying? Um, especially with, you know, the the 
they have cockroaches and things like that. There's things that they can do that they don't need to use aerosol, you know, pesticides. So the next time you fly, just observe. And, you know, if you're a, a video type and you start to see this stuff come out of the air vents, you know, take a little video of it and share it. Because I think <laughs> mostly people wouldn't believe you if you said, yeah, they're spraying us on the plane. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Imagine being a pilot, you know, being exposed to that on a daily basis. Yeah. That oh, makes yeah. me wonder if frequent flyers or uh, airline staff have higher rates of neurological disorders or Parkinson's or anything like that. I wonder if there's ever been a study. That would be interesting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the, just the combination of everything. And what what I found really interesting is, as she said in the beginning of the article, you know, do you ever get off the plane feeling sick? You know, like, mm-hmm. oh, you know, you think, oh, it's just jet lag or you know, it's time change, but there's definitely been times where I've gotten off a plane and not felt well. So that may be something to consider. Yeah. Bring your gas mask. <laughs> yeah, right. I, I can't imagine that the TSA would, would be very uh, friendly if you tried to wear a gas mask onto a plane. <laughs> Oh, that would totally freak the other passengers out. Too. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, it's just my you oxygen respirator. it off rather quickly. <laughs> yeah, so that was my little uh, connecting the dots to share today. <laughs> cool. Um, let's see. We have here uh, Gabby. Do you want to cover uh, vitamin C? Looks like some interesting info about gut microbes and vitamin C. Yes, it was an article published uh, that we covered at Sat.net a couple of weeks ago, written back by Sayer G from Green, Green Med Info, and it's titled "Gut Flora Helps the Body Produce Vitamin C." So the title suggests it seems that human beings are capable of synthesizing vitamin C through our gut bacteria, which is something very remarkable because it is long believed that the human body is not is not capable of producing vitamin C and that we lost this ability like 60 million years ago. But the microbiome, which is, you know, the microbes living in our digestive tract, um, they're part of the new definition of the human body as a very complex organism, you know, consisting of trillions of of microbial organisms in our gut. And um, as an anal- analogy, Sayer G writes that, you know, if we look at the genetic contribution of human genes uh, versus the total set of genes represented by the microbiome, our genes account for only 1%. And um, another example is the certain strains in our gut help produce the activated form of folate which is a vitamin of B complex. And um, so it seems that our gut bacteria may feel in the void that our genes are not capable of satisfying. And the other fascinating thing is that Sergi speculates that microbial DNA contributions may shift in years, weeks, minutes, and perhaps even in real time, you know, in a matter of seconds. I find that fascinating because it changes our whole idea that everything's set in stone, you know. And um, 
so yes, this paper challenges the the myth that we're not we're not able to produce vitamin C, even if it's even if it's only a tiny amount. It does seem you know it makes sense that we're able to produce these essential vitamins through our gut bacteria. So yes, that's basically the this news item. Wow. Cool. Yeah, that is interesting because I'd only heard that animals can make vitamin C. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, well, let's see. Next up here, uh, Doug, we had an article about uh, cancer. Yeah, this um, yeah. this is an article uh, that was posted on June 3rd uh, by Dr. Malcolm Kendrick, and it was on his blog. That's just called drmalcolmkendrick.org. Um, and he's talking about the uh, outbreak of mass hysteria in the UK press about statins protecting against cancer. Um, he quotes from the Daily Mail, which says that uh, statins slash the risk of death by cancer. Uh, they slow tumor growth by up to 50%, um, revealed in major studies. Uh, experts say there is overwhelming evidence that statins treat cancer. Um, the study showed that they cut death rates for bone cancer patients by 55% and that GPs should make patients aware of the pill's new benefits, researchers say. Um, so, of course, he's, you know, refuting this um, in, in some ways. He says these claims have kind of popped up on a regular basis uh, for years. They've been saying, you know, they'll, they'll say that uh, statins are, are good for treating cancer. Um, but he says that, uh, and just quoting here, uh, anyone who is stupid enough to believe such research deserves all the statins they can get. Um, so his major criticism is that, they, that these are not randomized control studies. Um, so they aren't actually taking people and splitting them into two groups, giving one group the meds and the other group the placebo. Um, they're only observational studies. So um, as we've talked about in the past on this show, you know, um, observational studies, um, they can show an association but they can't prove causation. So um, uh, Kendrick says that, you know, they can't give overwhelming ev- evidence of anything. Um, you know, all they can do is suggest an association. Um, his other uh, criticism is that uh, what they're showing is relative risk and not absolute risk. So, you know, the redu- reduction in risk, um, you know, has to take into account what the risk was in the first place. So, um, reduction could be a big deal, but it could mean very little. Um, If the the risk was only 0.1% in the first place, then a 50% reduction really actually doesn't mean very much at all. Um, But the biggest issue that he has is the kind of the elephant in the room, um, and that is that studies uh, have fairly conclusively shown that people with higher cholesterol levels are far less likely to die of cancer. Um, Add this to the fact that the people in... uh, with higher cholesterol levels are far more likely to be prescribed statins, and you start off with the most gigantic built-in bias it's possible to find. Um, And I'll just quote a little bit uh, from his article here. He says, thus any observational study on lowering cholesterol with statins starts off with a massive inbuilt bias in two populations. You're looking at one group of people who have a much lower risk of cancer to start with, then give them statins, then declaring that statins protect against cancer just the most absolute unscientific cod swallow. Um, as a final warning, be careful about lowering cholesterol too far. A very large Japanese study that you will never have heard about because it is not very supportive of statins uh, looked at prescribing statins over 47,000 people over six years. 
as they found, and he quotes from the authors here, patients with exceptionally low total cholesterol concentration, the so-called hyper-responders to simvastatin, had a higher relative risk of death from malignancy than in any other patient groups. So Kendrick says that, in fact, the rate of death from cancer in those whose cholesterol fell the most dramatically was increased by 330%. The authors added this warning. Further analysis was necessary to elucidate why hyperresponders had an increased risk of death. The baseline characteristics will be described and discussed in detail in the future. Nevertheless, the health of patients who show a remarkable decreased total cholesterol or LDL cholesterol concentration with low-dose statin therapy should be monitored closely. So it's basically showing that, you know, it, it's kind of a good analysis of the way that these pharmaceutical companies will kind of take these really loose associations and then pump them up in the press um, to be much bigger than they actually are. Um, the idea that statins actually, um, you know, will cut your cancer risk is pretty, you know, far-fetched to say the least. And they haven't really done the studies to actually um, you know, prove this or even show that it's likely. They just kind of are manipulating the numbers and, you know, taking observational studies and trying to um, apply causation to them. And this happens all the time. So it's kind of a, a, a good warning. Um, whenever you see these headlines in the, in the press, whether it be about statins or any other um, medication or even stuff about, you know, saturated fat, um, a lot of times, you know, you'll see these headlines that say, you know, saturated fat, you know, guaranteed to make your heart explode or something like that. And it, it's really like, if you really look into the details of it, it's not, you know, there's there's nothing behind it whatsoever. Um, all they're doing is selling headlines and, you know, um, you know, bolstering um, the popular conception of whatever it may be they're writing about. So I thought it was a very interesting article. You can find that one on site. I love that the uh, they use the word cod swallop. We should start to yeah. if you if somebody suggests statins and you just say cod swallop, yeah. cod swallop. It's an appropriate response. Yeah. Yeah. Like, well, speaking like we of covered cod... TV shows of well, no, um, like statin drugs, they're you know they have the biggest profits in all medical history. So mm-hmm. yeah, it's. Uh, it's very psychopathic on the part, you know, to try to make, create more profits out of, you know, applying the mm-hmm. cancer research. Yeah, exactly. And I, it's, I think that, you know, statins are more and more starting to get bad press because it seems like, you know, every week you're seeing a new study come out that shows some horrible side effect from taking them. You know, like, honestly, I, I, I can't believe the number of studies out there that are showing these detrimental effects from taking these drugs. So I think that this is this is their way of kind of countering that and going, no, no, look, they're a miracle drug. It's great. <laughs> well, uh, let's see. Next up, we have uh, an item about uh, the biotech company Syngenta. Eric, do you want, Erica, do you want to go over that a little bit? Oh, um, yes. Uh, well, just a, a real quick, right now, um, Monsanto, the biotech company that everyone is aware of, I'm sure, or will be aware of at some point in the future, we carry a lot of information on SOT about their evil doings. Um, mm-hmm. They're attempting to purchase Syngenta right now. Uh, Syngenta, for those who may not know, is a Swiss-owned 
biotech company, also uh, pesticide or uh, herbicide company. Um, what's kind of interesting about Syngenta is they are famous or not so famous for making the um, atrazine chemical, which was uh, studied pretty intensively by a professor at UC Berkeley called Tyrone Hayes, and he um, has written some excellent articles about the evils of atrazine, basically how it affects the sex of frogs, and um, it's actually carried on the SOT page. It's called the Frog of War. It was carried in Mother Jones magazine. And then there's some other articles, if you just look on the search engine on the SOT page about Tyrone Hayes basically taking on Syngenta. He was hired by Syngenta to do research on their atrazine product, and he came out with some pretty disturbing information, and he decided it was his responsibility to get that information out there. And now they have turned against him, shockingly, Mm -hmm. And really gone after him. And, you know, this guy's been at Berkeley. He's a tenured professor. He's uh, very well-spoken, has a very good sense of humor, but also doesn't take any crap. And so he's (laughs) taken them on head-on. And, you know, um, so if anybody's interested in in reading about him, again, a good article is called The Frog of War. But... um, the reason I kind of wanted to share this in connecting the dots is a lot of people don't know about Syngenta. They know more about Monsanto because they get a lot of negative press. Um, but they are involved with the biotech industry and GMO products. Uh, mm-hmm. Syngenta is always kind of ridden under the radar. You know, they let Monsanto get all the negative press and then they continue to do what they're doing. So, mm-hmm. um the interesting thing is their chemical atrazine can't even be used in Switzerland or European countries, but uh, they'll gladly give it, you know, to us Americans who will take anything. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, so yeah, Monsanto wants to buy them out. Like, I, I don't have the information in front of me, but I think it's like $40 billion or something ridiculous like that, and they're like you know no 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 we're not going to we're not going to take that and there i guess the day that they uh the uh, possible buyout was uh made uh their stocks went up and you know it's this whole ridiculous thing um and i can't even remember the name of the article exactly um but uh again mother jones magazine had an article about this buyout and what it means so basically you know monsanto will now own if they can purchase it basically all the uh, GMO seeds and chemical you know agriculture chemical products and uh, they'll completely corner the market so um, it'll just it'll be interesting to see how it progresses you know I mean they're all evil to be honest but uh, you know it's just another like um, corporate takeover and trying to really control every aspect of agriculture and uh, the seed market and food. And, you know, they're constantly, both Syngenta and Monsanto are constantly coming out with PR about how, you know, their products are going to save the world and they're going to feed people. And then at the same time, all the negative health effects associated 
with things like Roundup and the atrazine research that Tyrone mm-hmm. Hayes has done. It's, you know, so it's like this, it's like the vaccine issue. It really is. It's like this, every time a really bad piece of information comes out, then they counteract it with, oh, well, we're going to do this, or oh, it's going to do this, you know. So, um, yeah, it'll mm-hmm. be interesting. Uh, uh, I'll keep everyone posted on what happens. Uh, I can't say whether or not that the buyout will happen, but it wouldn't surprise me in the least, you know, that that these uh, big biotech companies want to control every aspect, you know, of food and production. So, Erica, I may, sure. I may have missed it, but what is atrazine? Is it an herbicide? Um, yes, it is... I think, aside from Roundup, one of the most applied um, herbicides in the United States. And Mm -hmm. what's happening and why Tyrone Hayes did the research is that it's getting into the water, obviously, and it is changing the sex of frogs. So it's Mm -hmm. probably a hormone disruptor, you know, I don't have his article open in front of me, but he lays it out, and it's pretty much nasty stuff. And he he went on to say, you know, originally I was a supporter. They hired me to do the research, and I thought the product was fine. And then I did the research, and I didn't come up with the results that they wanted. So uh, now it's been an ongoing battle. And he's really intelligent, and he's kind of a rapper, so, like, he – he uses this whole other way of dealing with them, and they they can't really handle that. <laughs> they don't like mm. him at all. <laughs> and he is traveling around people. the country. He's traveling around the country giving lectures. I mean, he even came to Hawaii to a very small town and gave a lecture. So he's on the lecture circuit. He is fighting tooth and nail to get this information out there, and he doesn't care about mm. Syngenta, you know. He doesn't care. <laughs> well, too bad there's not more people like him because these companies have loads of researchers, and you can't say that none of them notice that their products are killing people or at least killing frogs or messing with their hormones. So why don't more of them speak out? Yeah, and especially yeah. with this merger, you know, it's like you're going to spend $40 billion to buy a company that produces something that can totally mess up, A, the environment, and B, people. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. doesn't seem like a wise Well, it's choice, Monsanto. But, <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's like a hypnotic, evil, normalcy bias, like, oh, it kills. Okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah, don't look this way. <laughs> Yeah. Maybe this is the uh, the long lost secret to the uh, the so called American dream, where you can make a bunch of money. You just need to make a toxic compound and then label it as something good and sell it, and, and there you go, and you can make a bunch of money. Yeah, maybe that's what we're all doing wrong. <laughs> yeah, we're trying to heal people and give health advice, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> How silly of us. How silly of us. <laughs> well, uh, did we want to cover the, uh, the heat wave in India here at all? I'm sure most people are kind of aware that that has been uh, going on, and I think it's mostly subsided at this point. Uh, <clears throat> but I guess just to uh, just to cover it briefly in case anybody was unaware that uh, in late May, uh, most of 
India was hit with uh, temperatures uh, upwards of 100 degrees, uh, even to 113 degrees that uh, Fahrenheit that uh, melted melted roads. Um, mm. A lot of people died. Uh, let's see here. We have on May 23rd. Uh, a town near the northern northeastern coast of uh, India reached a temperature of 42.2 degrees Celsius, which is 108 Fahrenheit. I oh, think it says man. the highest was uh, 113. So uh-huh. maybe for people who live in the desert, that might not be such a uh, such a <laughs> surprise. I mean, you know, like in the American Southwest, it can reach upwards of 100 uh, from time to time, um, but in uh, in a country such as India, especially in some areas where people are so tightly packed together, it can be really, really damaging. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. yeah I, I think I had heard that over over 2,000 people had died. Wow. Yes, and the interesting thing is that this was in late, late May. Now, in um, June 10, which was a couple of days ago, there was heavy flooding in some parts of India. Mm. Like over 80,000 people were affected. So, yeah, we're dealing with a lot of change very quickly. Mm. All right. If, uh, if anybody is curious for more information about all of that, uh, check out uh, sat.net and look for the most recent uh, uh, Earth Changes video uh, from... Uh, mm. From May, it's it's pretty intimidating. It's really a frightening watch. But they compile all of the different things that have been happening uh, just over the month and floods, earthquakes, volcanoes, heat waves, uh, hail, all sorts of things that are increasing more and more. Um, so I just need to keep your eyes peeled and keep yourself healthy. Uh, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Well, speaking of that, let's get into our topic a little bit. And uh, Tiffany, I know that uh, you didn't have a, a ton on this, but would you like to start us off a little bit on uh, on the diet and how diet relates to sun exposure and how, like, if you eat well, you might not need to worry so much. If you eat bad, then you do need to worry a little bit more. Um, I guess just go over that for a Yeah, that's basically it. <laughs> <laughs> in a nutshell as in all things as in all things having a healthy diet uh, makes you healthier <laughs> so yeah. um, no but mostly the only thing that I could find regarding a healthy diet and uh, making sun exposure a little bit more safe for people is uh, there's a super antioxidant called axtaxanthin also known as vitamin X and it's made from microalgae. Um, some doctors, the ones who advocate for safe sun exposure, actually have their clients take axtaxanthin and then go out into the sun, and that increases their production of vitamin D. Um, and another thing that I researched was that having a high intake of essential fatty acids also helps your body produce more vitamin D with sun exposure. That's pretty much all I can find. <laughs> yeah. Well, astaxanthin is a um, it's a carotenoid nutrient, um, so it's related yeah. to beta carotene. And apparently, all carotenoids are very good for um, uh, protecting against uh, sun exposure. And I just have a little bit of anecdotal mm-hmm. uh, evidence. Uh, I, I was uh, a friend of mine was heading down uh, into the the tropics 
uh, I can't remember exactly where she was going, but, um, and she was asking me, you know, is there anything I could take to kind of be, you know, more protected from the sun? So I, I told her about this, uh, this kind of, uh, the supplement that had uh, several different carotenoids in it, you know, beta carotene, uh, zeaxanthin, lutein. Um, I don't think it even had astaxanthin in it. But uh, so she was mm-hmm. taking that regularly and she was fine. And then she said she forgot for a couple of days to take it. And that's when she got sunburned. Um, so mm-hmm. I think it has a pretty direct, um, direct uh, relationship to kind of protecting against uh, sun exposure. Because she was getting about the same amount of sun exposure every day. And she was fine until she forgot to be taking that, uh, that supplement. So huh. Nice. Yeah. Well, uh, on that note, Doug, do you want to kind of take us into um, the functions of vitamin D and then some of the sources? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, so vitamin D, it's it's one of the few um, single nutrients to show like so much promise. Um, there's a lot of research on vitamin D right now, and they're kind of uncovering new things about it every day. Um, one of the things about it, it's it's uh, it's one of the only vitamins. It's actually not a vitamin. Um, you know, it was kind of misclassified when it was first discovered as a vitamin. It's actually um, a hormone. Um, and they found that uh, low levels of vitamin D uh, increase risks of uh, multiple diseases, um, the main ones being heart attack, stroke, and uh, some of the deadliest cancers around. Um, it's one of the only, or sorry, it is the only uh, uh, nutrient that we uh can get from non-food sources, that being the sun. Our main source of vitamin D is is uh, sunlight. Um, so the human form is uh, vitamin D3, which is also called col uh, calciferol, um, and that uh, converts in the body to calcidiol, which is 25 um, uh, OHD, as it's known in the in the medical literature. Um, and uh, when Anybody does um, a test for vitamin D, it's important to actually test for that 25-OHD um, form of it. And that's like the circulating uh, vitamin D in the body. So that's what you'll find in the bloodstream. Um, that will uh, convert to calcitriol, um, which is the hormone form. Um, and it's formed by many different cells in the body, including like immune cells, prostate cells, ovary cells. Um, there's, they're, they're discovering um, new cells that actually use vitamin D all the time. Um, in the diet, we can get it from fish like herring, salmon, and sardines. Um, you can get it from fish oils, particularly fish liver oils, so cod liver oil, halibut liver oil. Um, you can also get it from eggs, if uh, provided the hens are actually fed vitamin D. Um, you can get it from fortified foods, but there's no real meaningful amount in there. A whole carton of milk that's fortified with vitamin D has about uh, 400 units um, in the entire carton. So it's pretty menial. And um, that form is generally vitamin D2, which is not the same as vitamin D3. That's not the form that um, humans actually uh, can use right away. Um, It needs to be converted. Um, So there's a kind of a rate limiting step there where like how good your body is at converting vitamin D2 to vitamin D3. Um, vitamin D2 is otherwise known as ergocalciferol. So if you're ever buying a supplement of vitamin D, make sure it's the D3, which is uh, called colocalciferol, and not the D2, which is called ergocalciferol. The main difference there is that um, vitamin D3 in supplement form generally is coming from sheep lanolin. So the sheep are not harmed um, to get this D3. It comes from their wool. Um, but 
people who are kind of strict vegans and don't want any kind of animal product at all will insist on getting vitamin D2, um, but unfortunately it's not um, as good a source. Now, I know they have found um, some ways of getting vitamin D3 in vegan forms from uh, lichen, which is like a moss, um, but uh, yeah, it's, it's much more expensive. Um, so if you're if you're pretty strict about uh, about not using any kind of animal products, you can get D3 in supplemental form, but I say just go for the sheep animal. Um, vitamin D3 has a longer half-life than vitamin D2, and D3 actually lasts in the body for um, uh, upwards of 60 days, um, whereas D2 only lasts about 30 days. Um, so you know, with vitamin D3, it's not like other vitamins where you necessarily need to be taking it every single day. Um, there was one study I read about where they were doing 100,000 100, units of uh, D3 uh, once a month, and that was that was fine. Wow. Like that was okay. Your body actually, because it circulates for 60 days, um, that that taking it in that amount at one single time is fine. Um, you know, it, it might not be the most convenient for most people. Um, and you know, if you think about it, you know, 100,000 units, um, in, you know, that works out to about um, 3,000 IU a day. So it's even it's not even like a, a massive um, amount. Um, so sunlight is generally considered our best source, but I'm going to go into some stuff here that maybe says that we need to be supplementing anyway. Um, it depends on kind of responsible sun exposure, um, very dependent on the time of day. Um, I, I, a lot of this information is actually coming from a researcher named uh, Jolie Root. Um, I was fortunate enough to actually attend one of her talks um, I think, I don't know how much information she has online, so I don't know how much people will be able to find, but a good source uh, for this information is to get it from the Vitamin D Council, who have a pretty excellent uh, webpage, and a lot of this information will be able to be found there. Um, so she talked about the 30, uh, 35th parallel, um, and in the United States, that's basically if you draw a line between Phoenix and Atlanta, uh, that's the 35th parallel. So above this line, um, vitamin D is basically only produced between the months, uh, or not produced between the months of October and March. Uh, that's considered like the vitamin D winter. So the sun is just such that you're not really getting much in the way of uh, vitamin D from the sun during those months. Um, there's a longer vitamin D winter if you live further north. Um, I'm up in Toronto, so my vitamin D uh, winter is even longer. Um, you need to be getting your sun exposure midday. And she gives a pretty good um, uh, rule of thumb. If your shadow is taller than you are, you probably aren't making adequate vitamin D. Um, so in other words, if the sun is in the sky um, low enough that you're casting a long shadow, you're probably not getting the vitamin D that you need to be getting. Uh, the concentration of UV rays is just simply not sufficient to actually make um, the vitamin D. Um, another issue is color of skin. And uh, she said that vitamin D is not politically correct. Uh, the darker your skin, the lower your ability to create vitamin D. Uh, very dark skin, so anybody of uh, African origin, um, can have a difference of up to 99% uh, compared to fair skin. So it, it's a really significant difference depending on your skin color. Um, it's also uh, your ability to produce vitamin D is actually reduced by age as well. A 70-year-old only makes about 25% the vitamin D of a 20-year-old. So uh, again, these are all things that kind of interfere with your uh, vitamin D protection. Um, sunscreen, which I know Erica is going to go into a bit later on, but just uh, a quick note here, an SPF of 8 
which is very low SPF. Most people are doing like, you know, 40, 45, something like that. But an SPF of 8 will lower your vitamin D production by 95%. Um, so if we really want to get our levels up, it's fairly necessary for us to be um, either very diligent about sun exposure or to be supplementing. Um, so when, you know, you know, how vitamin D is produced, uh, the sun shines on the skin, and the skin has a precursor to vitamin D called uh, 70-hydrocholesterol. That's right, cholesterol. So for all those people who are telling you that cholesterol is bad, here is one of many uses of cholesterol in the body and why you actually need to have it. Um, so the UV rays, which are UVB, um, that warm up the 70-hydrocholesterol, um, and it has to be a UV index of 3 or greater. Um, and that turns it into cholecalciferol, uh, which goes to the liver and becomes uh, calcidiol, which is 25 OHD. And that circulates, as I said, for about 60 days. Um, other tissues, uh, including the breast, uh, colon, prostate, kidneys, immune cells, they can turn uh, calcitriol, calcitriol sorry, into uh, the um Sorry, I've written this wrong here. They can turn cholecalciferol into calcitriol, which is the, the hormone. Um, calcitriol is much more short-acting, um, and, and it varies from moment to moment, so that's why you don't measure that much. Um, or that, that substance, you actually measure the 25-OHD. Um, ideal uh, levels for 25-OHD, and I know Gabby's going to go into this, so I won't go too much into it, but uh, the average is about 15 nanograms per milliliter. And I'm sorry, that's in the American uh, terms. If you want to convert that to uh, uh, nanopole, nanopoles per liter, which is kind of what the rest of the world uses as their measurement, you times it by uh, 2.5. Um, in the summertime, people are getting an average of about 18 to 20 uh, nanograms per milliliter. Um, and a lifeguard who's spending kind of all day in the sun and has uh, much of their body exposed is making about 60 nanograms per milliliter. Um, so, yeah, a young person with fair complexion out in the sun all day can make about 10,000 to 25,000 units of vitamin D in half an hour. Um, so, you know, all these people who talk about, oh, you don't want to use more than 1,000 IU of vitamin D a day, just think about that. If you were to spend a half hour in the sun, you'd be getting 10,000 to 25,000 units. So it really kind of brings into perspective all this fear of, uh, of toxicity and getting too much of it. Um, so Jolie Root uh, says that um, the optimal for disease reduction level is 32 nanograms per milliliter. So just to look back over that, 32 is the ideal for, for disease reduction, and most of us are getting about 18 to 20, and that's in the summertime. So it's the low levels of vitamin D are basically epidemic at this point. Um, yeah. Researchers say uh, the proposed ideal limit is 40 to, uh, 40 to 60 nan uh, nanograms per millil uh, milliliter. Um, so we're nowhere close. Um, anything below 20 nanograms per milliliter is considered a deficiency, and most of us are not above those deficiency levels. Um, 21 to 30 is considered insufficient. Uh, acceptable is anywhere from 30 to 100. Um, so, and toxicity, you know, isn't even considered at anything less than 150 nanograms per milliliter. So that's 10 times higher than what we uh, are taking on average uh, in the winter months. Um, so you would need to take 40,000 units daily for two to three months to get anywhere near toxicity, and no one is recommending this. 
Yeah, I don't know too many people yeah. who are taking 40,000 units of vitamin D. I mean, it's it's in in Canada actually you can't even buy anything that's over a thousand per pill. So you'd have to be mm-hmm. taking 40 pills a day to be to just to get to that. Um, yeah. To get to the ideal, which is uh, 40 nanograms per milliliter. Um, you, you know, considering what you're getting in the diet, what you're getting from sup, um, sunlight, um, it's recommended that you be supplementing about 4,000 uh, IU per day. Um, so just a, a general rule of thumb, if you want, if you get your test done um, and you want to increase the amount you have uh, of circulating vitamin D by 10 nanograms per milliliter, um, they recommend you add 1,000 units per day. So if you want to go up by 20, then you add 2,000. If you want to go up by uh, 40, you add 4,000. Um, so just a couple of benefits of vitamin D here. I, I know I'm talking a lot here, so I'll try and go over this fairly quickly. Um, vitamin D status is linked to longevity. Um, all-cause mortality is correlated with vitamin D status. So uh, it includes reduced risk of heart disease, deadly cancers, diabetes, pre-diabetes, which is insulin resistance, um, autoimmune conditions like MS or rheumatoid arthritis, depression, obesity, hypertension, dementia, uh, infection rates for flus and colds, and tuberculosis, uh, and of course the bone diseases, uh, including osteoporosis um, and osteomalacia. Um, Vitamin D was originally discovered as um, a uh, regulator of calcium absorption, Um, and that's still how a lot of people think about it, but they're discovering these new uh, uses for vitamin D in the body all the time. Many, many cells have vitamin D receptors, um, and they're just continuing to be discovering these vitamin D receptors in more and more cells all the time. Um, And it actually activates certain functions in the cells, but more importantly, it switches on or off genes. Um, So far, they've discovered about 2,000 genes that switch on or off from uh, vitamin D. Um, Other cells that have uh, vitamin D receptors include the intestines, the muscles, Osteoblasts, which are the um, the cells that actually uh, add calcium to the bones, um, endocrine cells, uh, breast, prostate, ovaries, immune cells, and brain neurons. Um, so it is fundamental for good health. Um, low levels of vitamin D increase the risk of heart attack. Um, there was one study that found that men who had below the deficiency level had a two times greater risk of heart attack. Um, and those who had uh, 15 to 30 nanograms per milliliter had increased risk also. So that's kind of just hovering below the adequate level, um, still had increased risk of heart attack. Um, it also supports mood and well-being. Um, there was a study in, um, in Miami of seniors, so Miami being below that kind of um, uh, vitamin D winter parallel there, the 35th parallel, so they're getting lots of sun there. Um, and they did a study on seniors who were uh, undergoing hip replacement surgery, and 85% were found to have vitamin D deficiency. Um, so that's even in Miami. Um, low vitamin D was associated with low cognitive performance, low mood, uh, and low physical performance. Uh, the average was 18 nanograms per milliliter, which is deficient, um, and they had an 11-fold increase in mood and cognitive disorder. Um, There is a direct correlation between vitamin D status and um, these mood and cognitive disorders. Um, So I think a lot of people are uh, familiar with with SAD, which is a seasonal affective disorder. 
um, that it, you know it, it makes sense that these uh, low vitamin D statuses are are um, correlated with the low mood um, because you know a lot of people notice that in the winter time they're a lot more depressed and that is probably directly related with the vitamin D levels. Um, uh, it affects intellectual performance. Uh, as I said, there's a direct correlation with vitamin D, um, and there's significant problems in those who have deficiency. So your brain is simply not working properly if you don't have adequate vitamin D levels. Um, vitamin D also regulates bone metabolism, uh, but also muscle um, function. So poor coordination um, and muscle weakness Chronic muscle pain, bone pain, osteoporosis, and osteopenia are all associated with low vitamin D levels. Um, let's see, what else here? Oh, calcitriol, um, which is the kind of uh, circulating form of vitamin D, uh, normalizes parathyroid hormone. Um, elevated parathyroid hormone actually pulls calcium out of the bones, so normalizing that parathyroid hormone will actually normalize your, your uh, bone mass. Uh, 32 nanograms per milliliter is the bottom line um, as far as the amount of uh, vitamin D you have in order to protect muscles and bones. Uh, and that means you need to be taking about 2,000 to 3,000 um, IU per day on top of taking a multivitamin, getting some for your diet, and getting sunlight. Um, one last note here is that uh, there's a lot of stuff associated with pregnancy and vitamin D. Um, there's actually an increased risk of C-section birth. Um, and these aren't people who are kind of planning a C-section birth. These are people who are found to need a C-section after they go into the hospital uh, attempting a normal birth. Um, apparently, low vitamin D is associated with four times the risk of needing a, a C-section. Um, it's partially uh, associated with weak, weak muscle tone, um, but more often associated with a wrongly shaped pelvis. So, you know, back in the day when women would die from childbirth a lot, a, long, a lot of the times it had to do with a, um, a wrongly shaped pelvis, like a narrowing of the pelvis, which was associated with low vitamin D levels and um, maybe low-level uh, osteopenia. Um, better vitamin D status means better muscle tone and you're better able to, uh, you know, because you're using a lot of muscles during the, during the childbirth. So um, having a better vitamin D status means a better um, birth childbirth um, overall. And that's pretty much what I had on vitamin D and its importance. Cool. Well, there's certainly a, a lot of supporting information there. Um, we can see yeah. how... Well, the one thing that really struck me is that it's just... Sorry, go ahead. Oh, oh go ahead. Uh, yeah, well, I was just going to say the one thing that really struck me is just how important it is, like how many different functions in the body actually require vitamin D. And, you know, it's one of those things where I kind of always thought, you know, I get it in the sun a fair fair amount, so I should be okay. But, you know, so many different things are affecting how much vitamin D you're actually getting from the sun, and I don't know if I'm there during the proper hours. Um, you know, I don't tend to use sunscreen, so I don't, don't have a problem with that unless I'm going to be kind of exposed for a lot of time. But, uh, but yeah, I, this, this, just doing this research has already changed my pattern of vitamin D consumption, and I've started supplementing again. So, mm -hmm. Yeah, and the, uh, the dosages, I was just uh, surprised to, to hear that you know, some people were t doing 100,000 units once a month. Yeah, um, yeah. Pretty fascinating. Uh, 
Well, speaking of that and uh, of like the uh, the dosages and the levels and stuff, um, let's go to Gabby for a little bit and talk about uh, deficiency, vitamin D deficiency, and the, as well as uh, testing your your vitamin D levels. Gabby, do you want to cover that for a few? Yeah, it's basically a recap. I think you did a pretty good job. You know, uh, basically mm-hmm. when you want to test for vitamin D, you ju- you should ask for 25 OHD blood test. You can get it at your doctor's or you can do um, a home test. It's like a prick test. You can order your kit from vitamindcouncil.org. This is for U.S. residents. So it's either that or you can go directly to the lab, you know. And so um, vitamin D range guidelines, it varies among, you know, the several organizations, you know, government agencies and so forth. But I think um, as we covered, you know, the, the vitamin D council has a very good, you know, uh, range and it's it's uh, it's really, you know, reasonable. You're deficient if your results are between zero and 30 nanograms per milliliter. And if you have over 150, it is toxic levels. Ideally, it should be around 40 and 80. And yes, these are units of nanograms per milliliter for U.S. citizens. And if you're in the rest of the world, it's nanomoles per liter. Per liter, yes. You convert nanomoles to nanograms by dividing dividing by 2.5, and you convert nanograms to nanomoles by multiplying by 2.5. This is all very clear in the frequently asked questions at vitamindcouncil.org. So if you want, if you want to have those ranges on the table, just to have an idea. You can go there and um, and it will be clear. And yes, as as far as supplementing goes, you know, if you are extremely deficient, that yeah, like supplementing will be a good idea. If you are between zero and ten nanograms per milliliter, and just to give you an idea, you will need at least um, three thousand six hundred units per day to achieve levels of forty nanograms down the road, like months. But if you want to achieve levels of like 70 nanograms per milliliter, you have to supplement with almost 10,000, you know, units per day. Hmm. And uh, in the worst case scenario, um, very high levels of uh, vitamin D can develop in your blood, can develop if you take more than 10,000 units per day every single day for three months. That's the worst case scenario. Usually you require more, but, you know, you want to be on the safe side because you cannot test for vitamin D for some reason or, not, or another, this is the, the amount to keep in mind. And, um, yes, that's pretty much it, our brief recap. Great info. Good to know. Um, Let's talk about sunscreen for a little bit. A lot of people, like Doug had mentioned, you know, the, the SPF, and a lot of people are using really high uh, SPF in their sunscreen, but uh, they might be uh, pushing themselves over the line into toxicity by using some of these uh, widely sold sunscreens. Uh, Erica, do you want to cover that a little bit for us? Like, what's in the sunscreen? A lot of toxic crap. No. Just <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> <laughs> going to be enlightening. No. Um, so sunscreen, yes. Uh, we um, see it used a lot, especially in children. Um, 
in Hawaii, it's everywhere. It's always being applied. It's kind of crazy. So, um, yeah, I wanted to do some research on it um, because, you know, you're, you're, you see all these different products. You see parents buying, you know, kids safe, this, that, and the other thing. So what's the deal? I mean, is, is, do you need it? Is it healthy? So um, I did some research, and I'm just going to share here some of the ingredients, but also give a resource for, for uh, people that are interested. Um, the Environmental Working Group, EWG, they have a website. Um, they're kind of known for doing the dirty dozen research about pesticides in fruits and vegetables, but they also have an excellent website, um, kind of, I mean, an excellent resource on their website. Um, about sunscreen and beauty products as a whole. Um, but basically, they studied over 2,000 types of sunscreen and found that some are worse than others. Their term was better, but I, I used the word worse. Um, so you can find uh, this resource at the uh, EWG, Environmental Working Group, .com, I believe it is. And... Um, you can search your brand or the brand that you usually buy and find out what chemicals are in it. Um, they also have a downloadable app for your phone. Um, it's called the 2010 EWG Sunscreen Guide. And then they also have a, a little side uh, search database called Skin Deep. And, um, that's covering a lot of uh, products, uh, lotions, and stuff like that as well. But basically, their database um, is uh, based on reviews of nearly 400 scientific studies of industry models of sunscreen efficacy, toxicity, regulatory info, and this is all information that's housed in nearly 60 government, academic, and industrial databases. So it's pretty, um, you know, well-researched stuff. Um, basically, uh, a good resource, if anyone wants a little bit of info, um, is an article we carried on thought called Debunking the Myths Surrounding Sun Exposure and Sunscreen. And it was by Prevent Disease. And... Um, in the first paragraph, they talk about not only does uh, blocking the sun's rays from reaching your skin dramatically reduce optimal vitamin D levels, but when you use any conventional sunscreen, it's like spreading cancer right onto your skin. And um, they talk about the harmful ingredients, and I'm going to kind of go through that. But before I do, I wanted to share um, what a doctor, a PhD for Environmental Working Group shared um, her name is Jane Houlihan, and uh, she said, don't be fooled by a seal of approval from the Skin Cancer Foundation. The organization lends its seal to any products with an SPF over 50 and companies that make a $10,000 donation. So... <laughs> You donate, if you donate $10,000, then you, you get a, you know, a thumbs up from the Skin Cancer Foundation. She also, um, this uh, Jane Houlihan, warns against sunscreen with oxybenzone. Um, the health risks aren't clear and the studies still need to be done, but some research shows that oxybenzone effect, effects is more than just skin deep. The 
chemical definitely absorbs into the body. And um, just a little bit more on that chemical. So basically this oxybenzone, it, it's a penetration enhancer, meaning that the, it's a chemical that helps other chemicals penetrate into the skin. Um, it undergoes a chemical reaction when exposed to UV rays. When it is absorbed, it can cause eczema-like allergic reactions and can spread beyond the exposed area and last long after you're out of the sun. It's considered a hormone disruptor. And a hormone disruptor, for those who may not know, is, some, is a chemical that mimics, blocks, or alters hormone levels. It can throw... Uh, can throw off your endocrine system. It, the CDC said 97% of Americans have this chemical circulating in their body. That was a pretty frightening statistic. <laughs> um, another chemical that's in sunscreen is called octinoxate. It's like those food chemicals, right? It's spelled O C T I N. O-X-A-T-E. This is a common ingredient in SPF sunscreens. It's readily absorbed by our skin and helps other ingredients be absorbed more readily. I mean, that's a frightening thought. Again, it's a mm. hormone disruptor. And it's also um, may cause premature aging and produces uh, menacing free radicals that damage the skin and the cells. Another one is called retinol palmitate, and it's a mm. vitamin A palmitate. The combination of retinol and palmic acid, an ingredient found in tropical plants such as palms and coconut, function to improve the product's performance against aging effects of UV exposure. When exposed to the sun, UV rays, retinal compounds break down and produce destructive free radicals that are toxic to cells, damaging DNA, and may lead to cancer. FDA studies have shown that retinal palmate may speed the development of malignant cells and skin tumors when applied before sun exposure. Another one, yes. Aren't these wonderful things? Just want to slather that sunscreen on right now. Um, another one is uh, paraben preservatives um, associated with both acute and chronic side effects. So there's butyl paraben, ethanol paraben, methyl paraben, propyl paraben, and can induce allergic reactions. Again, hormone disruption and developmental and reproductive toxicity. So those are some of the main ones. Then there's what they call inert chemicals, and these are chemicals such as titanium dioxide, zinc oxide, and talc. So they work on the basis of reflecting, scattering, or blocking UVA and UV, UVB radiation. And a really good article um, to check out is called Toxins in Your Sunscreen by Dr. Peter, Peter Dingle. And it's uh, Peter Dingle at Blogspot, Blogspot, to blog. <laughs> so basically, he says, most chemicals in sunscreens have minimal toxicological effects when first applied to the skin. However, when exposed to sunlight, 
The chemicals are heated and reactions occur between the sunscreen's active and inactive ingredients and the epidermis. Many chemicals in sunscreen have been found to cause phytotoxic, phytoallergic, and phytogenotoxic or DNA altering effects. Hmm. So um, I just want to wrap up here with titanium dioxide and zinc oxide because, you know, there's, there, you know, this white uh, titanium dioxide and zinc oxide is the white, you know, when you put the sunscreen on, it looks white. Um, they're, um, basically, you know, the idea is to reflect the sun. So that's why it has the white, um, sheen look, but with these inert chemicals, uh, people don't like to look white when they put sunscreen on, right? They want it to absorb quick and, and not be white. So these, um, nanoparticles are used in sunscreen to, again, like these other chemicals, get the sunscreen to absorb into your skin so it doesn't have the white um, look to it. So for those who may not know, a nanoparticle, I just want to give a little description here. Um, uh, a nanoparticle is basically uh, an, uh, roughly 100,000 times smaller than the width of a human hair. So it's very small. Mm. Um, scientists assemble them by rearranging atoms, and they are added to sunscreen by manufacturers to make sun-blocking ingredients um, rub or cosmetically clear. So like I was saying, so, so it's not white. Um, Nano-sized particles of titanium dioxide and zinc, zinc oxide cause concern uh, based on prelim several preliminary studies because these atom size additives have the potential to cause serious harm. According to an article, the FDA has known for a decade that almost half of the most popular sunscreens contain an ingredient they may, that may actually accelerate the growth of skin cancer cells, and that ingredient being mm -hmm. these nanoparticles. In France, Germany, UK, and the European Parliament, they have removed, rapidly removed and are requiring the elimination of these things, right? They're basically saying um, there's no safe, safety testing. They're not mandatory labeled. So um, we're going to outright ban these chemicals in our sunscreen products. Um, they're considered engineered chemical creations and they're in not only sunscreen, but many um, cosmetic products. Nothing of this kind is happening in the U.S., as we shared earlier. We're just like the master guinea pig, right? Yeah, we'll take it all. Um, <laughs> yeah. The Friends of the Earth um, examine... So Friends of the Earth is an organization that did some research on sunscreens as well. They did six studies on the health implications of manufactured nanomaterials used in sunscreens. All of um, them were peer-reviewed, and they've, published, they've been published in international scientific journals. And I'm just going to give you a quick rundown of what their research showed. Zinc oxide nanoparticles can kill important brain stem cells in mice. Nanotitanium dioxide injected into pregnant mice produced gene changes. 
Nanosized zinc oxide is toxic to colon cells, even in small amounts. Autistic disorders, epilepsy, Alzheimer's disease have been linked to nanotitanium dioxide. The zinc used in nano sunscreens can penetrate healthy human skin and potentially reach the bloodstream and urine in humans. And it was like I shared earlier, like this is like 97% of people tested have this in their urine, right? Um, nanoparticles are being added to sunscreens in the U.S. without appropriate labeling and reliable safety information. So basically, they're being given to an uninformed public. Um, there's two really good articles that you can check out. One is by Sayer G. It's called Why is the Food Industry Poisoning Us with Trillions of Nanoparticles? And, um, you know, because it is being used in food. Um, in the article, he talks about how nanoparticles are have received the grass certification by the FDA, and for those who may not know, that's generally regarded as safe. And um, so it's, uh, he also shares a study published in Biomedicine and pharma, Pharmacotherapy titled Effects of Titanium Dioxide Nanoparticles in the Human Gastric Epithelial Cells in Vitro and reveals for the first time that uh, nanoparticles is capable of inducing tumor-like changes in exposed human cells. Mm. Um, they also talk about how it affects the gut microbes in a negative way, so I definitely recommend Sayergy's articles, a lot of uh, technical information. And then there's another article that was carried on SOT uh, just this month, uh, last month, called Nanoparticles in Food and Water Found to Alter Your Gut Microbiome by Heather Colligan. And it's more of the same information. Basically, bad, bad stuff. So, yeah, it's the sunscreen. You know, um, for people that live in tropical cultures, you know, especially being from Hawaii, you know, the sun can be very intense and especially for children, especially for fair-skinned children, I always recommend a hat. You know, wear a hat, <laughs> wear a shirt if you're worried about it, like Doug was sharing, you know, certain times of day. Um, they even have what's called a rash guard. It's like a tight, form-fitting shirt that you can wear in the ocean if you're going to swim or in a swimming pool. I mean, there's ways to protect your skin without slathering on this toxic crap, I mean, for real. And it's, it, for children, you know, the research, it's just frightening. It's just, you don't want to be putting this stuff on your kids at all. I mean, it's like we talked about, you know, with the Wi-Fi stuff in, in a, the previous shows. Like, they are so much more susceptible, and you're better just even getting them a full body wetsuit than you are to, to uh, put this stuff on them, you know? And it all washes well, off in the ocean or the, the swimming pool. It all comes off anyway, right? Mm -hmm. Let's bring the hat fashion back. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, definitely check yeah. out the environmental working group's Skin Deep website because... 
it's been so helpful. You know, you especially if you're into buying more healthy products, you go to the health food store, you buy this lotion, you buy that lotion. When you go on that website and you read some of the stuff that are even in what are quote unquote healthy products, it's really shocking. You know, it's mm-hmm. so it's it's a great resource for people and and I do believe they even have like shampoo information and stuff on there too. So definitely check it out. Skin Deep database. Yeah. It is it is a really great resource. I just wanted to say, Erica, you said it was ewg.com. I think it's actually ewg.org. Okay, good. Yeah, I didn't have it in front of me. Right. And then for people who who want some links and you know who want to share this kind of information with family or friends, we carried a great article on Sot called Ten Shocking Facts About Sunscreen from thehoneycolony.com. And she goes, she's got lots of great links. She's got 10 kind of points and and a really nice kind of graphic um, for people that may be, you know, suspect, you know, um, when you say, ah, don't put that crap on your kid, you know, people will, will, you know, what's your research to show that? You know, what being in the sun means skin cancer and and that um, that's just not true at all, you know. Cod swallow. Yeah, that's cod swallow. Well, just my fear, you know, fear base. Yeah, I was just going to say, say, it's just fear, you know. Oh, one last thing I wanted to share. So um, from this debunking the myths surrounding sun exposure and sunscreen, that's a great article, and there's a little, uh, like, three-minute video in that article. And basically, you know, they go through and they say, you need sunscreen because it has this benzo or oxybenzene. Like, they're actually telling you to put sunscreen on because it has that chemical in there, which was just so frightening. But basically, they said uh, a comprehensive scientific review indicates that 83% of 785 sunscreen products contain ingredients with significant safety concerns. Only 17% of the products on the market actually block both UVA and UVB radiation. So what's the point? I thought that was good. Well, I find it really ironic that so much of the, um, the, the ingredients in these sunscreens are actually uh, cancer-promoting. You know, it's all the, the promotion of wearing sunscreen is that, you know, you really need to protect yourself against the possibilities of skin cancer. And meanwhile, all this stuff that people are slathering on themselves is encouraging tumor growth. It's just so ironic. Man-made products supposedly speak your health. Uh, they actually do the top what they actually cause the condition to yeah it's the sunscreen <laughs> the sunscreen ghost. <laughs> My kids used to call it sunscreen. (laughs) Don't put that sunscreen on. (laughs) Well, speaking of the sun, uh, we uh, we had discussed a little bit uh, before the show the uh, 
the seemingly increased brightness of the sun. And um, I wasn't able to find, I, I mean, I found plenty of speculation about it, but not very much data. Um, uh, I have something here. The uh, Sami Solanki, who's the director of the Max Planck Institute for Solar System Research in uh, Göttingen, Germany, said that the sun has been at its strongest over the past 60 years and may now be affecting global temperatures. He said the sun is in a changed state. It is brighter than it was a few hundred years ago and is brightening, and this brightening started relatively recently in the last 100 to 150 years. Um, other things that I found were, uh, like I said, speculative. Um, NASA keeps a pretty close eye on what's called the irradiance of the sun, um, but at the same time, even they admit that their measurements uh, kind of contradict each other. Um, there are some uh, measurements that have been taken that uh, are higher than other ones, you know, the week before or the year before, and other ones that are lower than, and it's like, it depends a lot on where the measuring instrument is, uh, you know, what time of year it is, uh, where the sunspots are. And so even NASA admits that they're actually having a hard time coming up with uh, reliable data on whether or not the sun is, is getting brighter. Um, mm. I think that uh, anecdotally, uh, <clears throat> that I mean, anybody who spends a lot of time outside has noticed that the sun seems brighter now than it used to be. I don't know if uh, other people would concur with that, but it, it seems that way to me. Um, but even if that's the case, uh, I think based on kind of what we've been talking about, um, really the concern here, like the concern for cancers comes from mainly, I think, industrial pollutants and from diet. And, uh, you know, if, you're, if your diet is in order and if you're keeping yourself detoxified and uh, you're still spending time in the sun, you can handle that. Um, obviously, humans have been in the sun for as long as we've been around. So um, I think a lot of this, this in, increased rate of, uh, you know, melanoma and especially other types of uh, cancers comes from our industrial pollutants and from what we're putting into our bodies. And like Erica just covered, People are slathering sunscreen all, all over themselves, saying, "Oh, I need to stay out of the sun." But you know, it's a cancer-causing agent that you're smearing on your skin, so it's it's really really counterintuitive. Mm -hmm. um, and speaking of those kind of things that we like do to ourselves, uh, Tiffany, do you want to go over tanning beds for a little bit? Sure, not just tanning beds, but tanning in general, um, um, <laughs> since it is. You know, summertime or nearly summertime, and it's tanning season. Uh, you need to do a little bit of digging to find much of anything that's positive about tanning, either if it's from sunlight or from a tanning bed. Um, most of what you find from uh, information about tanning beds is uh, completely from a cosmetic-based point of view. Um, we've all been warned repeatedly, media, doctors, dermatologists, that sun exposure is bad and will eventually lead to cancer or melanoma. There's no safe tanning. There's no safe sun exposure. Stay out of the sun in hours between 10 o'clock a.m. and 3 p.m. Um, so, of course, like all so-called so common knowledge, that's not exactly true. So I gathered up a bunch of information uh, gleaned uh, places like Dr. Mercola's site. Um, there's also a doctor named Mark Sorensen. Um, he wrote a book called Vitamin D3 and Solar Power, and he has a blog that has loads of articles on 
vitamin D and sun exposure. So uh, to get into uh, get into it, um, the only wavelength that contributes to the production of vitamin D is UVB rays. Uh, when the sun is lower than 50 degrees above the horizon, you'll be exposing yourself to UVA rays, which have a longer wavelength than UVB, and UVA does not contribute to vitamin D production. Um, too much UVA actually destroys vitamin D, and it, it is the, uh, the wavelength that is more likely to cause burns. So natural sunlight is a combination of UVA and UVB, and this creates a balance. So if you want to tan and not just to look cute, but to manufacture D, this is what you can do to acquire a tan as way possible. Uh, if you're of the Caucasian the first few days attempting to tan at the beginning of the season, you should limit your, limit your sun to a body's melanocyte cells to rev up the production of pigment. Actually, having a tan helps prevent you from overexposure or burning. So if you have light skin uh, and you tend to burn, like say, for instance, you're a redhead, uh, a lot of moles, you're very light, um, you only want to be in the sun for a few minutes first. Then as your skin gets more tan in the sun a little longer, if you're deeply pitted or dark skin, um, you can exposure. Um, so if your ancestors are from Africa, India, or the Middle East, um, and you're deeply pigmented, you might not even have to worry about your the timing of your exposure. Brings up the question, black and brown people get sunburned. Uh, skin is, is heat, so the answer is yes, it just takes longer. I'm a brown person myself, so I believe that I was sunburned once in my life, but this was after like three or something on, on the, and I didn't get burned, burned like burning, but I just had a little peeling. So I guess it can happen. I just don't hear about it there. Um, but for anybody, safe sun exposure means your primary goal is to never, ever, ever get burned. So you have to use your common sense and you have to know your limits and you have to take it slow. Um, it seems obvious, but I'll just say it that um, sunburn is a sign that you spent too much time in sun. <laughs> so you have to, you know, like I said before, practice common sense. Um, hmm. When you actually do get a sunburn, the skin reddening that you experience is an inflammatory reaction. It can last for several days. And it's the result of either direct action of ultraviolet photons um, on the small blood vessels or from the release of toxic compounds from damaged skin cells. Um, a properly acquired uh, tan can actually offer protection against burning. And tans are natural sunscreens. Um, some people uh, get the idea, especially on young teenagers who spend a lot of time tanning in the sun or going to sunbeds. Uh, sun uh, they think that getting burnt, uh, well, it's just not a good thing. They think that it'll uh, deepen their tan. It actually will, but that's just because they're getting burnt. Um, 
and actually too much UVA exposure destroys vitamin D. Um, another thing to keep in mind is that it's not safer to tan or to try to get your vitamin D through a window as windows can allow in the UVA rays and it blocks the UVB rays. And I did find a little bit of information about tanning beds. You just have to be very, very selective and know what kind of bed that you're using. Um, so the FDA uses something they call an erythromal dose, and that equals one tanning session. So one erythromal dose equals the amount of time it takes for a tanning device to produce erythroma or a slight pinkening of the skin if you're white. This indicates that you've achieved a safe dose of and once you notice that your skin is getting a little pink, um, then it's time to sit in the shade, cover up with some lightweight clothing, put on the wrong side. Um, you should wait 24 to 48 hours between tanning sessions because it takes about 24 hours for the erythema or the pinkening of your skin to go away. A few different tanning beds um, for is not the particular you know, electric or magnetic power. This is like a capacitor inside the light bulb that the amount of electricity for starting and you could operate. On a it's a EMF bit on EMF can decay these beds. <clears throat> to test what kind of bed that you have, I'll take a picture of the width of the tanning bed. And if you can see bands of color in the light, then that means it's a metalist. Find a, a tanning bed and it's got a loud buzzing noise, it's probably a magnetist. So you want a tanning bed that has an electronic ballast to cut down on the EMF exposed. Um, there's all high frequency tanning and low frequency tanning beds. And high frequency tanning beds use a large amount of UVA rays and a small amount of UVB. Um, people who are into tanning, they like those because they tan faster and deeper and they say the tan lasts longer. And that's because uh, they're more likely to get burnt, um, more likely to get overexposure with but the whole point of, of most people going to tanning beds is to get a tan, not to produce uh, vitamin D in a manner. So tanning bed will really get it. So you want to try and find a low-frequency bed, um, balance between A and UVB, and it's more like natural sunlight. quality bed and I use of even less than 10 for the body at the same time. But the sunlight is why I pay for a tanning bed. I could see why people would do it in the winter time, but again, you want to be super, super careful about what kind of tanning bed that you're using. And if the areas of the salon can't some of those, what kind of bed they are. 
or what kind of beds they have. Um, so um, that's pretty much what I have in tanning. Um, Dr. Sorensen has some more information. He has a blog. It's drson blog at blogspot.com. Um, he says resetting tanning beds in Noma. Plenty of bad studies because in some studies they they go back and read data. There's no link because studies don't differentiate between safe tanning and getting burnt. We can to condition the person's type when they're actually uh, doing tanning. Um, so again, if you're very light-skinned, if you're a redhead, you have a lot of moles, you need to be extremely, extremely cautious. Never let yourself get burnt no matter what your skin color is. Um, there's a lot of drugs out there that uh, are photosensitive. So if you take certain drugs like antibiotics, some of them, not all, antihistamines, malaria medicines, cancer medicines, some cardiac drugs, diuretics, diabetes drugs, painkillers, acne drugs, some psych drugs, some antidepressants. You need to be careful when you are in the sun. Which kind of brings up another question, is the rise of melanoma not only due to a decrease in sun exposure and the use of sunscreen, but is it the photoallergic reaction of the medications? And since so many people are on so many medications, could this be playing a part in it? Um, some more um, research that Dr. Sorensen has, um, he found that 83% of the population in Sweden uses tanning beds, and researchers found a 38% decrease in melanoma. And overall, the risk of melanoma was reduced by 10% in tanners. Um, there's also been research that's shown that outdoor workers have decreased rates of melanoma, uh, far lower than indoor workers. Um, some people have said that melanoma is a disease of office workers. So people are, mm. who are in a building all day during the peak hours of the sun and have very little exposure. Um, there's been research that there's a lot of melanomas that are found on areas of the body that are seldom exposed to sunlight, which I thought was super weird. Um, they found higher rates of melanoma on the trunk, which for most people is usually covered unless you're walking around in a bikini or walking around with your shirt off all day. Um, so there's higher rates of melanoma on the trunk than on the head and the arms, and your head and your arms are usually exposed more in the summertime. Um, in women, melanomas are more often found on the upper legs. In men, it's more frequently found on the back. And in African Americans, melanoma is more common on the soles of the feet, which is hmm. super odd. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, that's just a little, you know, information on tanning. If you're going to do it, just make sure you do it safely and don't get burnt. Start off slowly and build up your tan naturally. And then when you turn pink, go sit in the shade. Sure. Yeah, I think it's also important to add um, to stay hydrated, too. Um, yeah. I personally have experienced um, 
heat stroke, you know, from being out in the sun working in the farm, and um, it's not a pleasant sensation. <laughs> but uh, to stay hydrated and even, you know, cool off to to cool mm-hmm. the body down, you know, um, definitely. Yeah, if you're going good. to to tan or use a, a high quality tanning bed, make sure you have some eye protection because even if you're in the tanning bed and you close your eyes the light can still damage your your corneas. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to go out and get some sun after the show is over. <laughs> Good idea. Just don't put on any sunscreen. <laughs> Absolutely not. Well, we are, uh, we're running a little bit short on time, so let's... Um, Let's go to Zoya's uh, pet health segment while we have the uh, the time left. She wanted to talk about vitamin D for your pets as well. Um, and then when we come back, we'll do a quick recipe for uh, cedar plank salmon. Uh, and uh, I'll ask Doug to weigh in a little bit on the whole salmon mercury controversy because we had talked a little bit about that before the show. So we will be back uh, after the pet health segment. <laughs> and welcome to the pet health segment of the health and wellness show. Today we're going to talk about the significance of vitamin D, but also about the importance of maintaining the overall well-being of your pet, and how giving your pets all the necessary conditions for a good and happy life may prevent development of various diseases, and if your pet becomes sick, to assist with healing. And that's just to share with you. Right now, I'm in the middle of the exam session. One of my nearest exams is therapy or internal medicine exam. And one of the first topics has to do with rules and principles of the proper and successful treatment and therapy. To be honest, I don't know if the same rules and principles are being taught in the Western veterinary schools, but I hope that they are, because they teach future uh, veterinary doctors how to see the animal not as a separate entity, but as part of the environment, and how the environment plays a major role in the animal's well-being. Since it is so important, I'm going to share with you some of the key points. The basic rules that govern veterinary therapy in East European schools are based on the recognition of the unity of the body with the environment, its integrity or wholeness, and the principle of nervism. It is an understanding that animal's body corresponds to a rule, treat the patient, not the disease. According to this understanding, well-known scientists like Pavlov or Botkin and others assigned great importance to the role of the nervous system in the pathogenesis of the disease. They also talked about the great influence external conditions uh, have on the organism. For example, the founder of uh, Russian physiology, Sechenov, wrote that the organism without an environment that supports its existence is impossible. As for Pavlov's theory of nervism, he claimed that the nervous system with the heart at its center is the primary regulator of the physiological processes in the body. Pavlov claimed that the more developed an animal became, the more important its nervous system became in its existence. An extension of his ideas on nervism, Pavlov's theory of higher nervous activity claimed that there was a second center of nervous activity in the human body, located in the brain cerebral cortex. Pavlov believed that it was in this physiological location that the psychic activity occurred, such as consciousness and thought. This is in contrast with the more instinctual responses such as the drive to reproduce or flee danger, 
which are generated in the nervous system. However, Pavlov believed that higher nervous activity could be conditioned just like other simpler physiological responses. Therefore, taking all the mentioned elements into account, it becomes clear that understanding your pets and their needs and providing them with all the necessary conditions for a happy living, including proper diet, sufficient interaction and stimulation, walks in nature, stress and toxin-free environment, may greatly assist with disease prevention, be it accidental or as a result of genetic predisposition. And as it turns out, walks in nature may help dealing with the next uh, topic of our segment, adequate levels of vitamin D. As you probably know, vitamin D is not only essential to a pet's bone and dental health, but to their overall well-being. Adequate vitamin D in the body protects from a wide range of medical conditions, including cancer, heart disease, infections, and rickets or rachitis. For example, recent research uh, found that dogs with a vitamin D level below 40 nanograms per milliliter were 3.9 times more likely to have cancer. The most natural source of vitamin D for all animals is ultraviolet B, or shortly UVB light from the sun. Mammals, birds and reptiles are designed to acquire the majority of the vitamin D intake from casual uh, exposure to UVB solar light. Cats and dogs naturally acquire vitamin D nutrient from UVB sunlight. Unlike humans and reptiles, cats and dogs do not make vitamin D in the skin. When UVB rays strike an animal's fur, oils in the fur are activated to produce vitamin D. Cats and dogs consume vitamin D when they lick or groom their coats. Unfortunately, very few studies have been conducted on the importance of vitamin D in cats and dogs, but here are some examples. Researchers uh, at the Royal School of Veterinary Studies, University of Edinburgh in Scotland, concluded that domesticated cats with mycobacteriosis, uh, it's a bacterial infection that can cause often fatal lesions, abscesses, ulcers, had significantly lower vitamin D blood serum levels than healthy cats. The College of Veterinary Medicine at Cornell University published a landmark study of vitamin D and canine congestive heart failure in 2014. The Cornell research team concluded that vitamin D deficiency may be a risk factor for congestive heart failure in dogs. In another study, Cornell University's College of Veterinary Medicine examined the association between vitamin D blood serum levels and cutaneous mast cell tumors, MCT in short, in Labrador retrievers. Mastitoma, or MCT, is a disorder caused by excess uh, mast blood cells produced in the bone marrow. MCT may lead to the development of certain cancers. The researchers selected Labrador retrievers because this particular canine breed is predisposed to MCT development. The research findings suggested that low vitamin D levels may be a risk factor for MCT in Labrador retrievers. As for other animals, birds in, uh, indulge, for example, in sunning themselves to maintain their body temperature and to consume vitamin D. They sunbathe in a variety of positions, including facing the sun with their feathers spread out for maximum exposure of UVB rays. Birds constantly apply preening oil from the Europegian gland, located near the base of the tail, over their plumes to make vitamin D. Another way birds absorb vitamin D is through their eyes. Birds enjoy better vision than humans because they can see five spectra 
red, blue, green, UVA and UVB, as opposed to the spectra that we see, red, green and blue. An additional gland around the bird's retina, hardarian gland, aids absorption of UV light to help regulate breathing, molting and circadian cycles as well as migration patterns. Snakes, turtles, lizards, alligators and other reptiles inherently sun themselves to warm their cold-blooded bodies and absorb UVB light to acquire the vitamin D fix. However, reptiles in captivity often suffer from vitamin D deficiency. Young pet reptiles frequently develop rickets or hitties and older ones often endure osteoporosis. So what you can do to ensure your pets get enough vitamin D? The most natural source of vitamin D for all animals is UVB light from the sun. Allow your pets outdoors in direct sunlight, ideally between the hours of 10 a.m. and 2 p.m. for about 15 to 20 minutes a few times a week. Walking your pets seems like the most comfortable way to do that. And just a note that while we see pets frequently basking in the moving sunspot in our homes, they are only enjoying the warmth of the sun. Since UVB rays cannot sufficiently penetrate glass, Animals will not make vitamin D from the indirect sunlight. Now, if you still feed your pets with a commercial dry food, make sure to read the ingredients labels carefully to ensure that the food contains vitamin D3, a holoculciferol, the most effective form of vitamin D. Think twice before feeding your pet food that simply states vitamin D, because the vitamin may be an analog of vitamin D that is not as effective as vitamin D3. But also, think twice before continuing feeding your pet with dry food, since vitamin D from natural sources like wild-caught fatty fish, liver, egg yolks and some dairy products is much more better than from dry food. Some people give over-the-counter vitamin D3 supplements to their pets. However, these supplements are designed for human consumption. Too much vitamin D can be harmful to your pet and can lead to toxicity. Please check with your veterinarian before providing vitamin D supplements to your pets. Also, next time your pet has a checkup with your veterinarian, inquire about getting a vitamin D test for your pet. The simple test uh, called 25-OHD involves blood serum collection that can be performed as part of a routine blood test. Be sure to understand your pet's test results and inquire if vitamin D3 supplementation is recommended. But as I said at the beginning of the segment, proper diet and adequate amount of walks should keep the vitamin D levels on the needed level. Well, this is it for today. Have a nice day and goodbye. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Leia. So it's definitely important to uh, to let your pets outside and not let them Obviously, anyway, that should be intuitive, but uh, make sure that they get out in the sun as well and we don't keep our dogs and our kitties cooped up all day. Um, so, let's see, in our last uh, few minutes here of the show, let's just go over a recipe for the day really quick. Um, but <clears throat> before I do that, Doug, you had mentioned uh, some details about the uh, the mercury in salmon kind of uh, controversy that a lot of people have been talking about. I know people, uh, some people avoid salmon for that reason, um, but mm-hmm. you had mentioned that the mercury is actually bound uh, to another compound in the fish. 
Yeah, I got this from um, uh, Chris Kresser article, actually, where he was looking into the whole mercury in seafood um, conundrum, I guess. And um, what he actually found is that because um, fish is very high in selenium, uh, selenium actually naturally binds to mercury. And when it is in that bound form, we don't actually absorb it. So if we're eating fish that is high in mercury, if that fish is also high in selenium, um, then you're actually, you don't have much to worry about from, uh, from the mercury. Now, of course, this doesn't cover anything like PCBs or radiation or any of that other kind of stuff. But as far as the mercury content is concerned, um, eating high selenium fish um, is actually uh, uh, okay. Um, now, I don't remember off the top of my head a list of the high selenium fish, but actually I remember that tuna and salmon, um, which are two of the fish that people are most concerned about uh, mercury content, are two of these such high selenium fish. So, um, yeah, um, maybe we have a little bit less to worry about as far as the, uh, the seafood mercury connection. And I would guess that... It's uh, versus factory farm. It would have a higher mm, yeah. content of selenium. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Um, you know, definitely important to uh, make sure, especially with salmon, because there are so many that are factory farmed. Um, they're they're kept in pens that are in the water, um, and they're more susceptible to disease and to contamination because they're not allowed to live their normal life cycle and migrate um, mm-hmm. as as they do. Um, mm-hmm. So, <clears throat> for this recipe, we have. Uh, uh, I'm just going to do this for one uh, fillet of salmon. Uh, so, you have uh, one fillet, depending on the size, uh, might be about a about a pound. Um, you want a, uh, a an untreated cedar plank. Uh, so it should be, you know, anywhere from a quarter inch to a half an inch uh, thick and about 12 inches long or as long as you can fit the fillet onto it. You want to soak the cedar plank for about an hour in warm water. Uh, Again, make sure it's uh, clean water, not tap water. And uh, once the plank is soaked, uh, heat your grill, like any outdoor grill, to about a medium heat and um, put the the plank onto the grill so that it uh, begins to smoke. And once the plank begins to start smoking, then you can put the fillet on there. Now, there's a marinade involved in this recipe as well. Um, so, uh, sorry, I kind of missed that part there. So before you start the, the plank onto the grill, um, in a uh, in a cup, uh, mix together butter, a little dash of uh, apple cider vinegar, uh, say about uh, half a tablespoon, um, and some chopped green onions, uh, some grated fresh uh, ginger roots, some minced garlic, and uh, some salt and some pepper. Mix that all together with the butter and the vinegar, and then uh, basically uh, take a brush and uh, brush that onto your fillet. So then uh, once the the plank is on the grill and it begins to smoke and kind of crackle a little bit, um, put the fillet skin side down onto the plank, um, put it, uh, you know, close the, the lid to the grill and cook that for about 20 minutes. Uh, you can even go a little bit less. So I would check it at about 15 and see where it's at. Um, the fish is ready when the uh, when it flakes with a fork. When you can put a fork into it and it kind of flakes away from the seams in the tissue of the, the fillet. Um, and then uh, take it off the grill, uh, brush it one more time with the marinade and enjoy. And that's cedar plank salmon. But cedar imparts a really nice 
flavor to the fish, and it's almost like kind of a hint of having smoked salmon. But the uh, if you cook this at the right temperature for the right amount of time, um, you get a really nice, like, tender flavor. It's not overcooked. So that's cedar plank salmon. Yeah, it's delicious. Mm. How yummy. Yeah, it's a, it's, mm-hmm. it's a nice recipe. The, the planks, uh, you know, unless you just have access to planks of cedar, uh, can be somewhat hard to find. You might need to order them online. Um, but if you live in kind of a, you know, a metro area or near a larger store, you might be able to find these kind of things. Um, <clears throat> can you reuse those? Hardware. Uh, <clears throat> you can. Uh, it doesn't have the same kind of flavor. It's really only best the first time. So, you know, if you have a fire pit or something, I would just throw it in there afterwards. But uh, I wouldn't reuse it more than once, you know, or more than one second use. Um, so, yeah. Well, that uh, thanks, everybody, for listening uh, today and for our people in our chat room uh, for tuning in. Um, we'll be back next Friday, and uh, we're going to be covering the topic of smoking. So we'll see how that goes. So be be sure to tune in and uh, uh, join us uh, next Friday at 10 a.m. Eastern. And, again, if you can't make the the live time for the show, then we are archived on the Blog Talk Radio page for the Sots Talk Radio Network. Um, And you can always uh, listen back to old episodes there. So... Thanks again, everybody, and to our uh, hosts, um, and we'll see you next week. Bye, Bye, everybody. Bye.